We turn in God's Word tonight to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. This is uh, the fourth in our small series on Noah. We've uh, looked at uh, his lineage, we've looked at the flood, we've looked at the covenant. But God's Word does not hide the ugliness of man, even as it doesn't hide the ugliness of David's sin or of Solomon's sin, nor does it hide the ugliness of Peter's denial. It does not hide the ugliness of Noah's sin either, for which we can be grateful and thankful that God's Word presents to us a very true picture of humanity and of our lives. This is, uh, for those of you visiting in the larger context of those whose names begin with the letter N, next Lord's Day evening, the Lord willing, we'll be looking at uh, Nebuchadnezzar and what God's Word tells and reveals about him, but also the lessons that we can take away. Tonight, though, we finish up Noah. Verse 18, Genesis chapter 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole world, the whole earth, were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servants. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. Let's fire the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer and ask for God's blessing. We give thanks for this portion of scripture and Ask your blessing on us as we study the life of Noah. We know that he was pleasing in your sight through faith that he had through as a gift from you, and yet he faltered in many ways, just like all of us falter, and yet through Jesus we are made perfect before you. And may we see that in this story, we pray, and ask your blessing on us, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two things uh, from this passage are two major points. First of all, this passage brings before us a historical reminder. And secondly, that this shows us the repeated failure. Or we could say, Adam again. This is a repeat of that which has happened previous. 
So a historical reminder and the repeated failure. It's rather interesting that we begin verse 18 with these words. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What's interesting is how many times we are told about Noah's sons. In this account of the flood, since we picked up the story of Noah, it's been repeated over and over and over again. Let me give you the citations. Chapter 6, 10. Chapter 6, 18. Chapter 7, verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 33. Chapter 8, verse 16. Chapter 8, verse 18. Chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 18. Chapter 9, verse 19. And then in chapter 10, we have it once again. God has repeatedly told us about the sons of Noah. One might say, why did he have to do that? Don't we get it the first time? Do we not understand that when the first time Scripture says, and the sons of Noah were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, okay, we got it. We got it. We got it. We know his three sons. I know sometimes some of you think that about Pastor Bob's sermons. Okay, you don't really need to repeat it so often. We got it. Well, perhaps it's because God continually repeats. And there's a reason for it. God wants us to understand who the three sons of Noah were. This is an important historical reminder that all of us are descendants here of Noah and of these three sons. But there is also something else going on. God is telling us about the world and the world situation in which we live. All of humanity can be divided between these three sons as well. But there is also the understanding that there is a certain responsibility that falls upon these three sons. It comes out pretty clearly, not only in this portion of chapter 9, but also in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. After all, we need to be reminded, Noah was not on the ark alone. Sometimes we kind of do that, right? Noah was on the ark. Noah was on the ark. Noah was on the ark. No, if, if, if we're thinking limited, we have to stop that. There were eight souls upon that ark. There is Noah, his wife, there are his three sons, and their wives. That is who is upon the ark. God wants us to see that he did not limit this to Noah but that Noah was blessed in a covenant understanding because his children were included in that covenant promise. That historical reminder. Secondly, we need the reminder of the actual descendants of Noah. If we went through it, if, or if you have your scriptures open, look at chapter 10. In chapter 10 now, we read, These are the generation of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So there are no children on the ark. God's making that clear. Shem, Ham, and Japheth only have children after the flood. 
And then we read of all of those descendants. Who came from Japheth? Who came from Ham? Who came from Shem? Who are all those descendants? It's through chapter 10. You go into chapter 11. We read of the Tower of Babel. I'll reference that in a moment. And then we read of Shem's descendants as well, which leads us to Terah's descendants, which leads us to Abraham. God is showing us the descendants of Noah until we come to Abraham. But he's also explaining the world's situation into which Moses is writing. So let's just stop, remind ourselves of something. Moses is the writer of the book of Genesis. Now the question is, when would Moses have written it? Just stop. Generally, we divide Moses' life into three categories, right? into three age groups. There's zero to 40 in which he's getting his religious training in Egypt. It would appear that as we read that account, Moses is not a super spiritual guy. That probably is not the time in which he's writing the book of Genesis. The second period of time is when he's fleeing. He's running from God. He's keeping sheep in Midian. He doesn't even want the call to lead God's people. A likely time for him to be writing scripture? Probably not. So that leads us to the third 40-year period. And that's during the wilderness wandering. It's during the exodus. Stop and think. Do you think during the time of the Exodus, during all those plagues, this might have been the time? Well, it could have been. You think while he's on Mount Sinai, could have been. You think it's while they're wandering for all those 40 years, got nothing else to do. Except wander from day to day and lead God's people and judge. Remember, okay, the pressures that were upon Moses. probably somewhere in that period of time. Now, we know he wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the last book that he wrote, okay, at least in the order that we place them, in, in the historical sequence that is being followed, it's being written just before they cross over the Jordan. It's being written just before his death. What is the land on the other side of the Jordan called? Just shout it out. Just somebody. What's it called? Canaan. Interesting, isn't it? What name takes central focus in Genesis chapter 9? Canaan. As these people are about to go into the land of Canaan with all of these enemies, what is God saying? He's saying, yes, these are all the descendants of Noah. But my curse rests upon these people. The third thing to note in this historical reminder is what is written here in Genesis chapter 9 
verse 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. The whole earth. Everybody who is alive, you and I, are included in this account. We're included in that verse of the whole earth. They had been given a command, be fruitful and multiply. It would appear they did so. It would appear they were obedient to the command that God gave them. They were fruitful. They did multiply. But one thing they did not do. God had also commanded them to fill the earth. But they had refused to do so. That's what we find in that Genesis chapter 11 account of the Tower of Babel. God is dispersing them. So in this one verse, God is explaining how it is that we have such a wide variety of people in this world. How it is that people inhabit all the locations of earth as a historical reminder. As an actual point of fact that is taking place. I read somewhere in, in the literature and reading about this over the past couple of weeks that if you take all of humanity, the difference between any two individuals in terms of their DNA is 0.6 of 1%. It's an amazing thing to think about, right? You think, oh no, we're way different than them. There's got to be about 50% difference. No, there isn't. There is a remarkable similarity between all of mankind. Why is there such a remarkable similarity? Because we are all coming from one of three sons who come from one man, Noah. Interesting how you have the parallel with Adam, right? You have Adam as the first man, and then we read of this lineage. But everybody dies except the one man, Noah, and his family. God is reminding us of the historical reality of who we are as the image bearers of God. Well, that sort of gets us started into what is happening here, but it's necessary background for us to understand the event of the repeated failure. We read as we start verse 20 that Noah became a man of the soil, a tiller of the soil. Not unlike Adam, who was a keeper of the garden, that was his responsibility, but as we read of the events of Genesis chapter 3 and the curse that falls upon Adam as he has to leave the garden, he's going to have to work the soil. So Noah also, okay, when he comes off the ark, they've got to have food. They're not in a garden of Eden. He has to work the soil. He becomes a man of the soil. And as part of that, he plants this vineyard. This is his work. 
A vineyard takes a lot of caring. It takes a lot of nurturing. It keeps, takes a lot of dressing. It's a reminder of that work of Adam in the Garden of Eden. God is not commenting somehow that this is wrong. No, it isn't. No, it does right here. This is a good thing. There is nothing wrong in anything that Noah did. But now we come to verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. It's interesting how sometimes you, you read different articles. There are some people who are so bent on misunderstanding the fact that Noah was a righteous man. That they give Noah every excuse in the book. Okay? Well, Noah didn't know what the grapes would do. Right? Now, understand this is a man who built an ark. This is a man who understood all of that science. This is a man who understood how to take care of animals. This is a man who was a preacher of righteousness. This is a man who lived in a society, okay, in which people were eating and drinking, implication, getting drunk. And it's like, oh, Noah had no clue. No, he's a righteous man. That's if you want Noah's righteousness to be his own. But Noah's righteousness, as we uncovered, was not his own. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He is righteous because of grace. He is righteous because of Christ, not because he is perfect. Does Noah know that if you drink fermented grape juice, you're going to get drunk? Absolutely. There are some who, who argue the point, well, you know, they're on the upper heights. They're probably still around on Mount Ararat, maybe still in view of the ark, and maybe it's because of the higher elevation that the, the wine took more effect. He thought he used to be able to drink a glass or two, and he was fine. Now, because he's at an upper elevation, he drinks a glass or two, and he's drunk. It's like, why are we making excuses? The man sinned. Sin was on the ark. In that boat, there is sin. Noah is a sinner. Noah's wife is a sinner. The three sons are sinners. The three wives of the three sons are sinners. The animals are sinful. They're not that which God created them to be. Sin resides within their heart. Noah drank of the wine. And he became drunk. Did he know what he was doing? Absolutely he knew what he was doing. Does he understand the effects of what he did? Absolutely not. His intoxication leads him to this nakedness. But before we get to that point, let, let's just stay here a minute. Drunkenness is a sin. We live in a society and a culture in which I don't think most people believe that anymore. I don't think most people think getting drunk from time to time is a big problem. I don't think if you ask most college students on college campuses today, is getting drunk a sin? They're probably going to look at you and say, well, number one, what do you, what's a sin? Okay, is getting drunk wrong? 
Not unless I hurt somebody. Not unless I do something bad while I'm drunk. But just getting drunk is not a sin. 40% of college students get drunk at least once a week. Note the words, at least once a week. Some of you are going to soon be gone from us and you're going back to, to school. You're going back to your college campuses. Some of you are going to stay home, but you're going to attend college as well. Oh, I know the problem exists in high school. I know it's there. But all the statistics show us that this, this problem of drunkenness spikes at college. I want you to understand, young people, drunkenness is a sin. God does not approve. God believes that this is wrong. It is it an affront? And the dangers, the dangers that you expose yourself to can be deadly. Let's pray. Father, as we send young people off to college in the next couple of weeks, as they go to their dorms or as they go to their classes, there will be talk of parties, there will be binge drinking, before, during, after football games and hockey games and basketball games. Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom and discernment to these college students from our congregation. Give them wisdom, Lord, to realize that this is wrong. This is a sinful thing. Give them discernment, Lord, in knowing who to hang around with who to be involved with. Give them, Father, the courage to avoid the situations and circumstances, Lord, in which they might be coerced. So many harmful things. It's a fearful thing for parents, too. And so we pray for them, Lord. We pray for, for peace of mind, and we pray, Father, that their good training might indeed have an impact. Lord, it's not that, that we think our, our college students are a bunch of drunks. We don't. But we know, Lord, as adults, how enticing and how much pressure young people face in these matters. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give them the courage of their convictions to be your people. In Christ's name. God's people say. Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a baller, and whoever, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Ephesians 5, 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, 
As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Proverbs 23. Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. Isaiah 5.11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Proverbs 23.20, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. Isaiah 5.22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. 1 Corinthians 6.10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Proverbs 23.21, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. A detrimental effect it did for Noah. What do we read? His sin of drunkenness, Leads to what? Verse 21. And lay uncovered in his tent. Verse 23 reminds us of the fact that there was the nakedness of their father. The Hebrew language in, in its original uses language here to describe what is happening with this nakedness of Noah with the same words that are found throughout the book of Leviticus that deal with sexual sin. Now we can't go beyond what scripture is saying and what scripture is telling us, but it would be apparent from the language that is being used that without his knowledge, in some way, shape, or form, Noah was involved in some form of immorality. Something he would have never done had he not been drunk. But his drunkenness gives someone the opportunity to be involved in some sort of sexual act with him. Did his drunkenness, his sin, have an effect? Of course it did. It had a drastic effect upon his family. That phrasing of the nakedness. Do, do you hear once again the Garden of Eden? See, taking the fruit. Because it would look so good and doing that which you were not supposed to do. And then what happens? Adam is exposed. He's naked before the Lord. What's Noah? He's naked. Not only just exposed to the Lord, but exposed to his sons. Perhaps his grandson is indicated in this passage as well. In the Jewish mind, 
to be exposed, to be naked before someone is one of the greatest shameful acts that can occur. The Jewish people are as a people modest. They do not dress in such a way to call attention to their bodies. One of the the great problems that exist even at the time of Jesus is there are those who have given way to Greek thought and part of that Greek thought involved having Greek baths where men and women would be naked together. There would be the gym where men would wrestle other men nude. And the conservative Jews are going, this is just wrong. We're buying into a culture that we should not buy into. So much is being told us here. There's much going into this phrase. It's not he's just laying there naked. This is a whole way of thinking about the human body. It's a whole way of thinking about sexuality. Noah, because of his sin of drunkenness, has now become exposed to the world. the shame that is involved in this. What happens next? Well, next we meet the three boys again, right? See here, we come back to them again. Scripture has reminded us of them. Now we come back to them. We have the one son, Ham. We are told he looked and he told. The looking here, that is the word that is used, appears to be more than just a glance. He walked into the tent, oh, my dad's naked, okay? No, it's a, it's a lustful type looking. This wasn't just a, whoops, accident. Sorry, didn't know you were getting out of the shower, dad. This was a pause. This was a looking. This was a staring. This was taking some sort of pleasure in that which he was seeing. And then he goes out and tells his brothers. And it is that, you see, that calls down the curse. Now, I'll I'll be honest with you, it is hard for me to understand exactly why the curse comes upon Canaan and not upon Ham. However, okay, if one understands that one's legacy is found in one's children, then where does the greater curse lie? In the fact that Ham would be cursed or the fact that his son would be cursed? Canaan. It could be an indication that Canaan is somehow involved in this sin with his dad. We don't know. That's going beyond where Scripture allows us. But we have to realize and stop here and and realize that God in, in his justice, in his perfect justice, in some way is acknowledging that Canaan deservedly receives this. So as I said to you, before they enter the land of Canaan, they are now told, these Canaanites that you're afraid of, they're under God's curse. Those Canaanites, they're going to become your servants. They're going to become your slaves. You don't need to be afraid of them 
or any of the ites that come from them, God's curse rests upon them. Go forth, conquer in the name of the Lord. That will lead to almost their extermination. Two sons, though our, the other two sons are also mentioned, verse 23. They do not go in and look at their father's nakedness. They don't hear him and go, hey, let's us go look at dad. No. They walk backwards with some sort of covering between the two of them. Okay? Walking backwards to wherever it is they, they run into dad's couch or whatever and they drop the covering over them so that they do not look upon his nakedness. Notice that Noah's pronouncement of a blessing upon both. That it is Shem who will become the ruler of Canaan. That's what we see played out in the book of Joshua. That's what happens. The book of Joshua is the completion of that promise. There is also a blessing given to Japheth. That blessing is that the sons of Japheth, the descendants of Japheth, are those who are going to experience and live under the blessing of Shem. Now what does that mean? Well, in a nutshell it means this. Jesus entered this world as a descendant of Shem. But we, as the descendants of Japheth, experience all of the blessings. This is about us. This is about the world in which we live. This is about society. God is explaining to us the story of grace to us. I want to remind you of one other thing before we go on to our last point here. Noah is 601 plus years old. Noah's not a teenager. And Noah's not a college student. Noah is 601 plus years old. Any older person here want to claim that they no longer sin? See, as we age... There's not some automatic thing that goes along with us. We just get older and then we get wiser and then we just don't sin anymore. I remember one older gentleman telling me once, Pastor Bob, the older I get, the more I see my sin. The more I become aware that I am a sinner. Not the sins of my youth, but the sins of my age. Noah is 601 years old and he is a sinner. All of us, young, old, alike, are sinners. And here comes the grace of the story. God provided a covering 
for Noah's shame. This is the beauty of this. This, It's hard to look at this story and say, is there anything good here? Yes, there is. Remember I told you what, what you see, we, ha- we have sort of the creation account being done over. We have a creation. We have an Adam who sins, who falls under a curse and shame and nakedness. And God came and did what? Provided a covering. Oh, he made an attempt. That's those fig leaves. But God came. Genesis chapter 3, 21. God came and provided skins. He provided a sacrifice to cover the nakedness and shame and sin of Adam and Eve. God provides a covering for Noah. A covering of his shame. A covering of his guilt. A covering of his sin. Oh, the world is out there laughing. That's Ham. He's out there telling the story. He's out there delighting. But God, God is covering the shame of Noah. That's grace. The guy's going to live a couple hundred more years. Does he live knowing his sin? Yes. But does he live knowing that through Shem, through Japheth, that sin was going to be covered. Yes, he does. Remember, Noah was the one who was supposed to be the one, according to Lamech, who was going to take away the curse. (laughs) This is the reminder, Noah's not the one. We have to look to another. Isaiah tells us, if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 61. I will, verse 10, excuse me, Isaiah 61, 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's what he did to Adam. He covered Adam with the garment of salvation. What did he do to Noah? He covered Noah with the garment of salvation. What does he do for Bob and Manon? What does he do for you? He covers you with the garment of salvation, with the robes of righteousness. See, we can't be pointing the finger at Noah, can we? Because we know our own hearts. We know our own lives. We know our own sin. None of us is holier than thou. None of us. But God covers us with garments of salvation. God covers us with robes. Of righteousness. Galatians chapter 3. 
Galatians chapter 3. Verse 23, Galatians 3, 23, and with this we close. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. See, what, what was the garment of salvation Isaiah was prophesying about? What were the robes of righteousness? Christ. What covered the sin of Adam? Christ. What covered the sin of Noah? Christ. What covers my sin? What covers your sin? Christ. Faith is to believe that glorious truth and to act according to that truth. May Jesus Christ be praised. And God's people say, Father, again we thank you. This is a tough and difficult passage. It's not easy for us to think of old Noah being a sinner, but he was. Sinful till he died. That's why we're told that. After the flood, he lives, and then he died. For Lord, the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to you that the gift of eternal life that covers us and clothes us is Christ. In his name, we give you thanks and praise. And God's people again say, Amen.